Heavenly Father, <clears throat> thank you again for the privilege we have of meeting again through this medium, and we're thankful that we can continue to do this, and we pray and look forward to the day when uh, we can get back to some sense of normalcy here, uh, when we can maybe meet together and uh, without uh, fear of the virus and so forth. We're thankful, Father, for uh, how that most folks in our congregation have been healthy and we're thankful that uh, we have some medical treatments now with vaccines and other things. Thank you for your good providence in this area. Uh, we pray for our class members that you will keep us all healthy. Pray for Liz Green, that you'll help her to continue to recover for Hugh Fairchild, uh, Lori Andrews, who is having the uh, cataract surgery and other issues. Pray for Lori and Hugh and Liz and others who may be having various difficulties physically. And we pray that we'll all be uh, helped spiritually as we look into the scripture, that uh, our hearts may be challenged and um, we may seek to be obedient to you and therefore grow in our knowledge and our experience of Christ and our service may appropriately be more fitting and uh, something that will be pleasing to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. So we're looking at uh, our quiz, first of all, here from last week. Uh, number one, Paul uses the imagery of a Roman triumphus. There's the Latin word that I mentioned, triumph to illustrate the irresistible advance of the gospel. Well, of course, that's true. Paul does use that. He says, thanks be to God who leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. And of course, the point of all that is to say that Paul and the Corinthians face a lot of opposition, a lot of obstacles. We all face difficulties in the Christian life, but as Jesus himself said, the gates of hell will not prevail. So his program, his church is going forward. It may seem like there are setbacks and there are you know, temporary, what appear to be setbacks at time, but ultimately these are all under God's control. And we're thankful that ultimately there will be a triumph in the kingdom and the eternal state. And those of us who have been blessed to know Christ will, of course, be able to experience that. So we have a wonderful future to look forward to. Number two, Paul accepted letters of recommendation from the Corinthians. Paul accepted letters of recommendation from the Corinthians. Of course, the answer to that is false. Paul would not accept letters of recommendation from the Corinthians, and he didn't bring any letters to the Corinthians. Remember the background of all this, we said is there were letters of recommendation, just as there are today. I mean, people sometimes write a letter of recommendation to recommend, uh, I've written letters to recommend somebody for a pastoral position or for a job. And we do that kind of thing because uh, 
people want to know, you know, what do you, what can you tell me about this person and so forth. And uh, Paul's enemies, uh, those who opposed him, and he had some outside influence at Corinth too. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, there doesn't seem to be any mention of outside agitators or anything like that, but it comes to the forefront in 2 Corinthians. These people uh, may have claimed credentials from Jerusalem. They appear to be somewhat uh, Judaistic. That is, we sometimes we call them Judaizers, and they appear to have some of that emphasis, uh, the law and so forth, as we'll talk about tonight. And uh, so they were suggesting, if we're reading between the lines, that you know, this Paul comes to you, but he doesn't have any letters of recommendation. He just presents himself. And Paul, of course, uh, wanted to be sure that it was understood he was on an equal level with the other apostles. He wasn't a lesser apostle. He got his commission directly from Christ. And uh, so he didn't take letters of recommendation from other apostles or from Jerusalem. And of course, he didn't need any from the Corinthians. But this was used as an argument against Paul and his ministry by his opponents. Number three, Paul's reference to, uh, a, to I should say, not a, but tablets of stone, speaks of the Mosaic covenant. Uh, remember, this comes up when Paul says, he talks about letters of recommendation. And he says, uh, you know, we don't need any letters of recommendation because you are a letter not written on stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. And this tablets of human hearts, this tablets of stone, leads Paul to contrast the old and new, the old covenant and the new covenant. And the tablets of stone uh, speaks of the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. And of course, we think of the Ten Commandments where the finger of God wrote those Ten Commandments for Moses up on Mount Sinai. And those tablets of stone represent the Mosaic system, the Mosaic legislation, the legal system, and so forth. Number four, the new covenant was instituted by Christ. I guess I didn't say that, uh, um, you know, I didn't say that directly last time. Paul references the new covenant here uh, in chapter three here as he talks about this. He says, um, um, you know, he is ministering. He's a minister of a new covenant, a very important verse. He's made us uh, competent as ministers of a new covenant. And of course, Christ said in Luke, you remember, uh, at that institution of the Lord, what we call the Lord's Supper before his crucifixion, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so Christ instituted this new covenant that replaces the old covenant. And Paul is a minister and we are too. We're servants, we're ministering as we give the gospel. This is a new covenant ministry, not the old covenant of Moses. Five, when Paul says the letter kills, he's referring to the Mosaic covenant. Yes, he is. He is saying the letter kills and we talked about that some last time, 
why would he say something so negative about that? And you remember the reason he talked about that is because he said, you know, we talked about the fact that the law itself, the Mosaic law, was not uh, inferior in itself, but its inferiority and its killing nature came from the fact that the Mosaic covenant itself did not provide for any life in itself. It said, do this, you know, had commands. But in order to fulfill God's commands, we need uh, a new heart. We need regeneration. And, you know, people could get that under the old covenant. People did. Uh, people believed God and they were regenerated. But not everybody in the old covenant was regenerated. So you could be part of the old covenant, circumcised the eighth day. All Israelites were under the old covenant, but not all Israelites were true Israelites in the sense of regenerated people. So the law, the problem with the law was that um, it doesn't provide righteousness for everyone um, because it doesn't provide a way to keep that law. It doesn't provide regeneration. It doesn't change the heart. And so Paul is very clear that we're not under law. And he says himself in 1 Corinthians 9, 9 20, I am not under the law. See, this is the new covenant ministry uh, now, but now we are under the new covenant. The old covenant had this defect. Uh, the law brings wrath because it says, do this, and if you don't do it, then there's condemnation. Uh, the law shows you that you're a transgressor. And Paul says in Galatians, if a law could have given life, righteousness would have come by the law. If you, could, if you could give somebody eternal life simply by passing a law, then law would have come, a life would have come through the law, but it didn't. So we need a new covenant. One that Jeremiah says, we're gonna write God's law on your hearts. And that's what happens at regeneration. God changes our hearts and gives us a desire to, to follow him and the will to follow him and the ability to obey him, something that we don't, that is not a part of the old covenant in itself, though obviously people could be regenerated. And there is uh, the passage we were talking about, uh, Jeremiah 31, where he's going to write the law on their hearts. And so we have this new covenant, which will ultimately be fulfilled by Israel in the future. Uh, Romans talks about all Israel will be saved. And so the new covenant will be fully established with Israel, but we are benefiting from the salvation aspect soteriologically. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. So we are benefiting you and I through the blood of Christ and the benefits of the new covenant. So we're looking at uh, chapter three still. Paul is defending his ministry, uh, but you know he gets into some other issues here in that defense. He defends his conduct, we saw first, and then he's defending the character of his ministry. Uh, he was accused of not being so sincere, and he deals with that. 
He's talking now about the new covenant and the relationship he has with that. And uh, he started talking about that last time, how that God has made us, he says in verse six, ministers of that new covenant. And uh, now he's going to get into a little digression here about comparing the old and new covenants, the new covenant versus the old covenant of Moses. Now, the reason for part of this, again, is these opponents are still rather legalistic. Remember, Paul faces this throughout after his first missionary journey. We talked about in Acts 15, he has to go to Jerusalem for a council because people are saying, hey, these Gentiles have got to keep the law and be circumcised. And of course, they just say, no, at the council, they say that's not true. Uh, Gentiles don't have to keep the law and be circumcised. And they send a letter uh, with Paul uh, uh, to, to take back to his churches in Galatia and other Gentile churches to say, no, in Jerusalem, we're not saying that. We're not arguing that Gentiles have to keep the law and be circumcised in order to be saved. That's not true. Salvation is by grace through faith. But uh, these people still dogged his trail throughout his ministry. Uh, there were those who still, and, and we can sort of understand this a little bit, I think, in the sense that here are Jews who are saved on the day of Pentecost, and that's a big transformation. And they've been keeping the law, following the law, and all of a sudden now, someone comes and says, we're not under the law. Now, now, nobody in the first few book chapters of Acts says that. It's the Apostle Paul, who's not saved till Acts 9, who brings this forth clearly to us and explains it to us, how this all works. So it took time for this to sink in and uh, be understood by the church as a whole. And so Paul is constantly having to deal with this issue of the law and the relationship of the Christian to the law. Um, so Paul is now going to talk about this new covenant and, and contrast it and explain it's really better, it's superior. And he does it in the form of an image talking about the glory. And he goes back to the time of the institution of the old covenant with Moses. So I say here, under uh, the greater glory of the new covenant, 3, 7 through 11. So far in chapter 3, Paul's argument has progressed from the idea of the commendatory letters written on hearts by the Spirit to his reflection on the new covenant promised by God through Jeremiah, under which the law could be written on men's hearts. Now, what that means written on our hearts is that now we have on our hearts the desire and the ability to follow that law. Uh, you know, we, we just, we have, we have this new nature, this new ability. This now prompts Paul to compare the old and new economies. So the old covenant and the new covenant had a distinctive ministry and was accompanied by glory. But the 
the new covenant ministry is vastly superior, what he says, in glory to the old covenant, so that in comparison, the old is sort of fading by significance and by comparison. And he's going to illustrate that with what happened to Moses when he goes into the presence of God and spoke to God into this old covenant ministry. Verse 7, now if the ministry that brought death, that's the old covenant, it brought death because it showed us we're sinners, we're under the wrath of God. There's no hope for us, you know. Now, if the ministry, that is apart from Christ, now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, as the Old Testament, Ten Commandments, came with glory, and it was glorious, so that the Israelites could not look steadily, steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious, the new covenant ministry? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, and it was, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? So in verses 7 through 9 and the remainder of the chapter, Paul provides a commentary, kind of an illustration, on selected points of the narrative in Exodus 34, 29 through 35. And there it says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to look, come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. But then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Now, the question is, why did he put that back on his face when he went in to speak, you know, you know until he went in to speak to the Lord? He takes it off. Uh, he, I mean, he comes back from speaking with the Lord. His face is radiant. He speaks to the Israelites, and then he puts this veil on. Why does he do that? Why, is it, why does he have to do that? Well, the text doesn't say, <laughs> but Paul's going to tell us why. He's going to tell us under inspiration why exactly Moses put that on his face. I say here, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets containing the Ten Commandments, his face shone so brightly that the Israelites could not look steadily at him. So Paul is arguing here that if this kind of glory attended the giving of the law under the ministry of our administration that brought death and con condemns men, how much more glorious will the ministry of the Spirit that brings righteousness? So the temporary nature of the old covenant, the law, is seen in Paul's description here in, of glory in verse 7. And he mentions it again in verse 11 and verse 13. 
as, a, as we, again, we said, the problem with the old covenant is that it condemns because it makes no provision for keeping the law. You need regeneration. Otherwise, you just have a depraved person trying to keep the law and they can't. So the new covenant ministry of the spirit is more glorious because it brings righteousness through regeneration. Verse 10, for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory, that is the glory of the new covenant. And if what was transitory, that old covenant ministry came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Again, Paul is trying to show the superiority of the new covenant versus the old covenant, which has captured the imagination of some. Paul continues and advances his comparison between the covenants one step further. The new covenant is not simply characterized by greater glory, so pronounced is the contrast between the two economies or dispensations that what was once rightly considered resplendent now uh, appears scarcely resplendent at all, he says in verse 10 here. So the old covenant immediately uh, suffers immediately from a comparison with the new. Uh, it belonged, in fact, to a, a vanishing order, an economy that began to fade immediately after its inception and was typified by the divine glory reflected on Moses' face, a glory that began to fade as soon as he left the divine presence. So remember... Uh, um, Um, on the other hand, a covenant destined to be permanent must be invested with a greater glory. Remember I said Luke 2.20, Jesus says this cup is the new covenant, and Hebrews 13.20 calls that an eternal covenant, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a superiority or the new covenant. The old covenant was not eternal. It was temporary. And it started dying the moment it was given. It was fading, in a sense, as illustrated by the glory that was fading off of Moses' face that Paul's going to make a point of here very clearly. So we're talking about the new covenant here, the greater glory of the new covenant, and now here the openness of the new covenant, 312 through 18. Therefore, verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We have this eternal covenant. We are not like Moses who would put a veil on his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Because they were participants in the new covenant, Paul and his fellow apostles and preachers could have a great boldness and confidence in preaching. They had the sure hope that it was a permanent and irrevocable covenant. They had nothing to conceal, but could be bold and open in their preaching versus Moses, notice, who would put a veil 
over his face. So remember Exodus 34 verses 29 through 35 that we read there said that it suggested that after each encounter between Moses and the Lord, Yahweh, in that tent of meeting, Moses would go into that tent and meet with the Lord. When Moses returned to the people of Israel to tell them what had been commanded, remember they were dazzled by the radiance of his face. Whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he, Moses, removed, removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had commanded, they saw his face was radiant. Then Moses would put a veil back over his face until he went back to speak with the Lord. Um, so the Old Testament does not explicitly state that the radiance on the face of Moses gradually uh, faded and then disappeared. But Paul deduces that from the fact that Moses put that veil on his face. And Paul sees the purpose of putting that veil on his face after he had spoken to the Israelites was to conceal the fading radiance of the reflected glory. Um, so Paul is telling us that. That's the reason why Moses did it. He's telling us that under inspiration. The Old Testament doesn't say that, but he deduces that. And Paul sees in that fading resonance, radiance, the fact that that radiance is fading when Moses is not in the presence and, and he wants to hide that. He, he doesn't want to show that that radiance is fading. So he puts that, that uh, veil on his face. He sees that as a symbol of the transitory character of the Old Testament. It's not the Old Covenant. It's not eternal. It's fading. Verse 14, but their minds were made dull. For to this day, we're talking about the Israelites, the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. He's using this illustration to illustrate a, a theological point here, an interesting one, isn't it? So this veil that covered Moses' face illustrated the fading na nature of the Old Covenant and its inferiority in the sense it didn't provide regeneration. That veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their heart. So in verse 14, I say here, Paul confirms that the problem was not with the law itself, but with the people. Their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. And in verse 15, he adds here, to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their face. So even in Paul's day, when Paul says, to this day, when Moses is read, in the synagogue, for instance, you go in the synagogue, they're reading from the law. Paul's point here is that Jews failed to understand Moses properly because their minds were hardened. Their minds were made dull. Their minds were hardened by depravity. And a veil, therefore, lay over their understanding. 
a veil covered their hearts comparable to the veil that covered Moses' face. Paul called it the same veil because just as Moses was unveiled when he turned to the Lord, so the unregenerate state of an unsaved Israelite was like a veil that could only be removed as they turned to Christ. So you can really only, <coughs> excuse me, you can really only understand the significance of Scripture when your face is unveiled when you come to Christ. But when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That depravity, that, uh, that animosity toward God, that's taken away. The language of this verse is adapted from Exodus 34, 34. There it describes Moses who took the veil off when he went to speak with the Lord. Paul used that terminology to illustrate what happens when anyone turns to the Lord. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, Paul says, the Lord completely removes the veil from the heart. No longer is his or her spiritual perception impaired. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, remember. The person without the spirit, that is the person under the old covenant, that is an unsaved person like we were, does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. We have this veil. Our minds are dull, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. Now that's an important thing, only through the spirit, because Paul's going to emphasize that now, how this works. Verse 17. Now the Lord is the spirit. Where And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I'll say here, verse 17a explains that the Lord of verse 16, remember he says in verse 17, now the Lord that I'm talking about in verse 16, when anyone turns to the Lord, the Lord referred to in verse 16 in the quotation from Exodus 34, 34, to whom the Jew must now turn for, for removal of the veil is none other than the life-giving spirit of the living God. So the article before the Lord here, now the Lord, verse 17, indicates, you know, we're a previous reverence we're talking about. I'm talking about that Lord in verse 16. So here's, Paul is using is an explanatory. I'm explaining to you who that Lord is. So Paul saying the Lord in the previous verse means for us, the spirit. And so in Paul's thinking and in the New Testament thinking, there's a very close relationship between the spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Now this involves the relationship of the Trinity, which is uh, difficult to understand and somewhat mysterious to us, you know, one God, but three personalities in that one God. But so therefore in scripture, you have this very close relationship, both the spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit are said to indwell the believer. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. So, you know, a person who's saved, the Spirit of God lives in you. But notice Galatians 2, 20. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Well, which is it? Well, <laughs> 
all three persons of the triune God are said to indwell the believer, actually, if you look at the, all the verses in the New Testament. God indwells us. Now, that, the, the one through most of through that function uh, through that's, that's realized is the work of the Spirit. Uh, the Father plans, the, the, the Son died to make that possible, and the Spirit carries out that ministry of the Trinity. Um, in Romans 8, 9 through 11, uh, you can see that all three are just, Paul can move from one to the other very quickly. Uh, remember, you're not in the realm of the flesh, if you're saved, but you're in the realm of the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, well, okay. The Spirit of God lives in you, you have the Spirit of Christ, then you don't belong to Christ, and the Christ is in you, then you're so forth. And if the Spirit of Him who raised up Jesus from the dead is living in you. So he can go from the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, you know, sort of interchangeably there. They're not equated. They're not, we're not saying the Spirit of Christ, Christ and the Spirit are interchangeable. They're not one person. That's a theological error that uh, is held by some Pentecostals, oneness Pentecostals, who claim there is, there, you know, they deny the Trinitarian doctrine. But the point is that Christ and the Spirit are so closely related and communicating to us, believers, the benefits of salvation that Paul can move from one to the other almost unconsciously. I say here the point in 17b is that though the Spirit is the Lord who has a right to exercise authority, His presence brings liberation, not bondage. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, freedom. Romans 8.15, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves. You're not slaves to sin so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought up about your adoption of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So the veil is removed in regeneration, in the new covenant. The veil is removed by the spirit. We now understand, we now see the significance of what God is saying. We are set free from bondage to sin, from death and the law, as Paul explains so carefully in Romans chapter 6, verse 18. And we all who, with unveiled faces, that is, we all who are under the new covenant, Christians, so he's still using this illustration about the veiling. The veiling represents the old covenant, the unsaved condition. And we all who would now with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So under the new covenant, not one man alone, but all Christians behold the glory of the Lord. Moreover, unlike the Jews who still read the law with a veiled heart, Christians with unveiled faces behold in the mirror of the gospel, in the mirror of the word of God, the glory of the Lord, which is Christ. Now, again, the glory is not displayed, it's displayed not outwardly on the face necessarily, but this glory we're talking about is displayed inwardly in the character. 
as we, with unveiled face, as we contemplate the Lord and his word, and, you know, as we understand him, we're being transformed. We're talking about sanctification here. This verse is quite often cited to speak about progressive sanctification. We're transformed, you know, with ever-increasing glory. So, so far from losing its intensity or luster, uh, the glory experienced under the new covenant uh, progressively increases, you see. Sanctification is a progressively positive thing. Righteousness is being uh, infused in us. We are becoming holy. The glory is increasing, not fading as it was with Moses, until we ultimately receive a glorious body, just like you know the risen Christ, Paul says in Philippians 3. And Paul concludes here in verse 18 by saying this transformation of our character is really the work of the Lord who is the Spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit. All right. So Paul is talking about the character of his ministry. It's a new covenant ministry. Now he's getting back to maybe some charges. He says the ministry was carried out openly charges against him and so forth of deceitfulness that he touched on before and he's going to come back to again. The ministry was carried out openly. This is chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. I say here now, Paul seems to return to the theme of 3.6, divine appointment and provision to be a minister of the new covenant. He has no reason to lose heart in spite of difficulties and problems and trials, persecution, for God in his mercy had granted him a privilege exceeding that of Moses. He had been called not to communicate the law, but to dispense grace. So Paul regarded this call to serve under the new covenant as more than compensating for all the trials that he endured for being true to his calling, including uh, the malicious charges of his Corinthian opponents. Verse 2, rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We, don't, we do not use deception, nor do we distort, distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul, I say, will return to the thought of verse 1, the idea of refusing to grow dis, uh, disheartened in verse 16. He's going to come back to that. But now he's going to expand a little bit on his brief self-defense. Remember 2.17. Unlike so many... We don't peddle the word of God for profit. And he's thinking about his opponents here. Um, that was a common thing that people accepted uh, funding for their ministry. Paul uh, 
did not accept any funding from the people he was ministering to. He, remember, he discusses that quite a bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He was actually criticized by uh, the Corinthians or by opponents who were saying, it's common for people who are ministering to you to accept funding. But Paul said, I'm not going to do that in this case because I'm trying to present the gospel as free, and I don't want you to think that, that, that you have to pay to be saved. You have to pay for the gospel ministry. Paul took his funds from other churches that he had already evangelized, and he didn't take it from those he was evangelizing. Um, and so Paul is returning to that thought that he mentioned in 217. We don't peddle it for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. So apparently Paul had been accused of deceitful behavior. And he mentions this a couple times later in 2 Corinthians. He says in 7.2, make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. Apparently, that's what his accusers are saying. And then he uses sarcasm here in chapter 12. We'll have to talk about the use of irony when we get later on in the chapters, because Paul will use irony and sarcasm against his opponents. He's, he's using it here. He says, be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. And now he's being sarcastic. Yet, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. You know, that's what his opponents are suggesting. And Paul is, you know, arguing against that. So Paul rejects this idea of deceitful behavior. His tactics, you know, had never been deceptive. He had never dishonestly manipulated the message of God that was entrusted to him. Now, normally, if one seeks to defend oneself, as the Apostle Paul is doing here against these kinds of charges, a measure of self-commendation has to be part of that. Uh, you've got to commend yourself or explain your own qualifications and so forth. But in the last part of verse 2 here, Paul committed himself not by trying to vindicate himself at every point, he says, but simply by the open declaration of the truth, he says. Um, by setting forth the truth plainly, he says. So Paul says, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to vindicate every part of my ministry, but I'm trying to uh, vindicate myself by setting forth the truth plainly uh, to everyone's conscience in the sight of God, the gospel and its implications. So his appeal is to the conscience of the Christians. They should understand and know, you know, if he's speaking the truth about the gospel, about what he says, that he's not using deception or trickery or anything like that. He says in verse 3, and if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers 
so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, notice here in verses 3 and 4, Paul's apparently dealing with a charge that his gospel is veiled somehow. It's unclear. Possibly this charge stems from the absence of a large number of converts, especially among the Jews. You know, if this is the glorious gospel of Christ, uh, why doesn't he have large numbers of converts, maybe especially among his own people? Remember, we have these opponents who clearly have a Judaistic influence, and so maybe there's opposition there. Maybe his opponent suggested, well, there's some defect in Paul's preaching, his preaching about the law and so forth. Uh, the truth is that Paul refused to use the methods of the contemporary orators of his day. Um, this is a, a problem for the Apostle Paul because in a place like Corinth uh, and in other Roman cities, uh, you know, there was no uh, <laughs> radio, TV. What did people do for entertainment? What did they, how did they amuse themselves in their free time? Well, they had drama and plays and stuff, but they often listened to people lecturing, people talking in the public square, orators and speakers. And so the ability to speak and speak ex, just uh, contemporaneously, uh, just automatically, just extemporaneously was highly valued and, and taught in the Roman world and eloquence and so forth. We see an example of that of Apollos, who was a very eloquent speaker. Nothing wrong with that. But Paul is fearful of that kind of thing because he doesn't want people to be persuaded by eloquence or his ability. He wants the, 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 the gospel itself, which has the power of God to change people's lives. Uh, we all know, you know, this is possible, that it's possible to persuade people, to put pressure on people. I mean, I've seen this throughout my life where uh, pressure, you know, high pressure evangelistic techniques can pressure people, some people into making decisions, you know, that are just really pressured decisions and that kind of thing. So you want, you want the gospel to do its work and people to make honest decisions. Remember, Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom. As I promise, proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, there's no value in being, you know, not able to speak clearly and correctly and get your point across. But the point is, what he's talking about is the kind of eloquence of these polished orators, sophists, they're, they're often called sophists. Uh, there's a whole, there was a whole uh, school of rhetoric and so forth in the ancient world. And Paul will have none of that as far as the, uh, the gospel is concerned. Now, for the sake of argument here, Paul says, and if our gospel is veiled, for the sake of argument, uh, Paul will concede, you know, his critics' point. In other words, they're they're sort of arguing um, 
you know, there's something wrong with Paul's message here. It's just not getting across, uh, you know, he's not, there's some defect in his preaching. Well, Paul will concede uh, a point here in a sense, even if our gospel is veiled, in the case of some people, Paul says it's not his doing because he sets forth the message plainly, as he said back in verse two. The problem is not with the message itself, no, the veiling where it exists as we saw back in chapter three, comes from the unbelief of those who are perishing. Uh, it's veiled to those who are perishing, Paul says, whose minds have been blinded by the God of this present evil age. Paul calls him the God of this age, or Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. So the fact that some people don't get it and don't see it, and the fact that maybe huge numbers aren't coming to Christ like maybe uh, some expect, Paul says this is really the work of Satan who wishes to prevent people from seeing the gospel light that focuses on Christ's glory as the image of God. As I said, the God of this age here, I say refers to Satan, who's called, of course, the prince of this world um, in John 12, 31, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air in Ephesians 2, 2. Now, he's only the God. He's God only. You know, he's called the, the God of this age here. He's only God in the limited sense that his followers so regard him. And at present, God allows Satan to utilize his power over the minds of sinners. So he's the God of this age. He's not the God of the age to come. Remember the New Testament talks about this age and the future age, the age to come, the kingdom age, the eternal state. He's not the God of, of that age, but he is exercising power in this age. Paul calls Christ the image of God. He is contending that Christ is the visible and perfect representation of the invisible God, the precise expression of the unseen God. Paul says in Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. In John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. And I say here to be an image is to be a true representation. Like we say in our expression, he's the spitting image of his father. You know, it's a spitting, he's the representation in visible form because God, the father, God is inherently uh, invisible. He's not, has no material form except when he's, except in Christ taking on humanity or when God manifests himself in some sort of Christophany or theophany in a visible form. So Paul was somewhat, uh, I'll say here in verse five, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So Paul was somewhat forced, I say here, to commend himself because the Corinthians, as we will see in 512, had failed to come to Paul's defense against these opponents. 
However, Paul never advertised or preached himself. The essence of his gospel was the proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord. We don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. The quotation, let light shine out of darkness, is probably an allusion maybe to Genesis 1-3, remembering God said, let there be light. God who said, let light shine out of darkness. The reason, the four here, four, while Paul preached Christ and served the Corinthians was because God had dispelled his darkness by illuminating his heart. Remember on the road to Damascus and had given him a knowledge of Christ he wished to share. So that's what the language probably here is recalling. God who let the light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us this knowledge. Paul had this tremendous experience on the road to Damascus where he encountered the risen Christ. And if you look at those accounts, each of them in Acts 9, Acts 22 and Acts 26, they all emphasize the, the light, the noonday light from heaven that was brighter than the sun. And it emphasizes this personal and revelatory experience that Paul had here. Now, Paul had that experience, but we don't have generally that kind of experience. And Paul reflects that when he says here, he made the light shine in our hearts. Paul had an actual visible, physical experience of that light on the road to Damascus. But all of us have the light shining in our hearts. So Paul's experience, his own personal experience, which is not literally true for all Christians, is theologically the same. We had the same regeneration that Paul had. The light shined in our hearts, <laughs> and suddenly <laughs> we came to the realization of the truth. God gives each of us, you know, an illumination that comes from the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This face of Christ probably means in the person of Christ. We come to a place in our lives where we see clearly for the first time who Christ is and who we are and so forth. And that's an experience that, you know, we will never forget, especially, you know, the, uh, especially if you're an adult, uh, you can recall that even more vividly in your own mind and life. Well, our next uh, discussion uh, next week will, Paul will, again, be talking about the character of his ministry, but he's going to talk about his ministry was performed in bodily weakness. This is in contrast, again, to his opponents who emphasize the glory and their, their you know, their greatness. And, <laughs> and, you know, we have a lot of this in our 
unfortunately, in our society today, the health and wealth gospel, where the successful preacher, the sex successful ministry flies around the country on jets, is never ill, has plenty of money, you know, is all these things. <laughs> and that's not the Apostle Paul, as we'll see, is his ministry is, is quite a bit different. But we will stop there for tonight since it's 8.02. And I will stop that. And let me see, I can stop this share here. And we will conclude for this evening. Any questions? You'll have to unmute yourself if, 